Hello from AEI in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, and I love what we get to do here. It's so much fun and rewarding, which is always a good combination, to connect college students with our nation's leading scholars here at AEI. So if you're a student and this all sounds fascinating to you, whether it's doing campus events with our scholars or participating in a podcast like this, hit subscribe on this show, one, so you never miss an episode and different opportunities to get involved that we talk about here, but also go over to AEI.org and find the For Students page in the About tab. There you can see all the ways to get and stay engaged with AEI as a college student. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you a special conversation. Um, It's special in a myriad of ways, but one of which is because this conversation will be between AEI's Adam White and our team's intern from this spring 2023 semester, Allie Mast. Allie has been a fantastic addition to our team, and if you are an undergraduate student interested in interning, we couldn't recommend it more. So Allie and Adam are going to be doing a Supreme Court roundup, looking at a number of important cases from this term. So Allie, thanks for your hard work this semester. It was a joy to have you on the team. Enjoy this conversation. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Ali Mass, and I'm a junior at Messiah University studying political science and English. Today, I'm grateful to be speaking with Adam White, a senior fellow at AEI in the Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies Department. His research and writing interests include American constitutionalism, the Supreme Court, the administrative state, constitutional and administrative law, and regulatory policy. Mr. White also co-directs the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, just down the road in Arlington, Virginia. He's practiced constitutional law and administrative law, served as a research fellow for Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and an adjunct fellow for the Manhattan Institute, as well as clerked for Judge David Suntel at the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Mr. White also earned a BBA in economics at the University of Iowa and a JD from Harvard Law. Adam, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you, Allie. I'm so glad you're here at AEI, and I'm very glad to be on your podcast. Great. So there's some fascinating cases on the docket this term at the Supreme Court. Today, I would just like to do a small-scale Supreme Court roundup, where I'll briefly introduce the cases for our listeners. You can offer your thoughts, and then I'll ask a more pointed question on the matter. Sure. So let's start off with two cases arising from the same set of facts, Gonzalez v. Google and Twitter v. Tamina. Here's the rundown for our listeners. The law treats web platforms like a telephone. Websites host speakers but are not legally responsible for what the speakers say and do, although the law encourages companies to remove material that is obscene or excessively violent. Gonzalez was killed by a terrorist attack in Paris, France in 2015. The next day, ISIS claimed responsibility by issuing a written statement and releasing a video on YouTube. The petitioners are suing Google, Twitter, Facebook, and other companies alleging that by recommending ISIS videos to those who could be interested, they were seeking more viewers and more ad revenue. So, Adam, to start off, what insight can you provide to these two cases? Sure, Allie. And these cases were argued in late February, February 21st and 22nd. There's no decision out yet as of the day we're taping this, but the decision might come out in the next few weeks. Um, It involves two areas of law. Uh, It involves the Anti-Terrorism Act, which makes 
people liable for aiding and abetting acts of terrorism, but it also involves, as you pointed out, the telecommunications laws. The Communications Decency Act has a, a, a late 1990s law has a Section 230, which gives companies some immunity to lawsuits. Let me just say at the outset, one of the really interesting things about the Supreme Court is that even when the laws don't change, the technology does. And so for a law that was passed in the 1990s for the Internet when it was brand new, uh, it, it's sometimes hard to see how it applies to new technologies that we use on the Internet. When this Section 230 was enacted, there were real questions about whether in those days message boards, chat rooms, other sort of brand new Internet technologies, other Internet platforms, whether they would be legally liable for the material that they allowed to be put up on their web pages or the materials that they took down from their web pages. So Congress enacted what we call Section 230, where Congress declared broad statements of policy that they wanted to see this new Internet flourish. But then uh, one particular provision, the one that's at issue in in the first case, the Gonzalez case, it says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by uh, another information content provider. For those who I just put to sleep with that text, here's what I mean. Oftentimes, uh, a newspaper can be liable for information that it publishes if it's, uh, if it's libelous or, or otherwise uh, unlawful. And as a speaker, I might be sued over something. What Section 230 did was take that kind of liability away from the Internet platforms that were just posting material from, from others. Or maybe the better way of putting it was allowing others to post material on the platform. In the Gonzalez case, the question is, when YouTube um, makes recommendations, right? It's not just that people are posting videos to YouTube, ISIS or other terrorists are posting videos to YouTube, but when YouTube itself makes recommendations and says, oh, you liked that video? Well, maybe you'll like this. You liked that Taylor Swift video? Maybe you'll like this Lana Del Rey video. You liked that terrorist video? Maybe you'll like this terrorist video. That last one there is what the case is about. And the question is, when YouTube makes that recommendation, uh, are they um, going beyond the protections of Section 230? And I'll be honest, you asked now a few minutes ago, insight into the case, I could say the justices seemed a little wary of limiting Section 230 protection here. Section 230's law, and for those who want to look it up, it's 47 USC 230 C1. Again, sorry for lawyering this thing up. But you'll see it's pretty broad protection. And even Justice Thomas, who's been a critic of Section 230 in other ways, even he at oral arguments seemed reluctant to cut off protections for Google and YouTube. Now, the other case was um, called Twitter versus Tomna. And Section 230 isn't involved yet in that case. In that case, they're just asking whether Twitter is liable in the first place under the Anti-Terrorism Act. If they lose that case, and I think maybe Justice Amy Coney Barrett asked the lawyer, who is the same lawyer in both cases, if Twitter loses under the, the, the Anti-Terrorism Act case, then we'll be right back on the Section 230 immunity question. But That might be more information than you wanted, but that's the case. That's great. Um, I was curious to hear your thoughts about who bears the burden, but yeah. it seems that you answered that pretty well. Do you want to go into that just very briefly? I'll just say briefly. I mean, technically, I think the defendants probably bear some kind of burden of showing that the that this immunity attaches. But 
I mean, I think the better way to think about it now is that there seems to be sort of a burden almost on the plaintiffs here to show that Section 230 doesn't apply. But we'll see. Great. Thank you for that answer. Sure. Um, I'd also like to hear your thoughts on the Biden administration student loan forgiveness plan. And then I'll group the two cases together since they were argued on the same date. Biden v. Nebraska and the Department of Education v. Brown. So for our listeners, the Biden administration implemented a plan to cancel up to $20,000 in debt for people holding federal student loans, citing the HEROES Act, which was passed after 9-11, and intending to ensure that federal student loan borrowers would not be hit economically in the wake of a national emergency. Both Trump and Biden invoked the law to pause student debt during the pandemic. Biden's plan goes further, allowing borrowers to qualify for 10 to $20,000 depending on economic earnings. Both cases ask whether the petitioners, six states in the one case and two ineligible students in the other case, have standing to challenge the plan. Also, they both ask whether the plan is statutorily authorized and adopted in a procedurally correct manner. Taken together, the court will seek to answer whether the program is an unconstitutional exercise of legislative power. So what's your take on these two cases? Well, first of all, congratulations to all of our listeners who uh, are getting their loans forgiven so far. And I'm, I, I hope I'm not sort of raining on people's parade. Again, at the outset, big picture point here. The Supreme Court in two centuries or more has heard so many cases on so many things. Every once in a while, an issue comes up that really hasn't gotten a lot of treatment in the Supreme Court before. And this is, this is one of those areas of law. There hasn't been a whole lot of Supreme Court litigation over what we call Congress's power of the purse. In some cases, and, and this case is about more than that, it's about executive power and how to interpret the HEROES Act. That's what the case really is about. But the question, the deeper question of how we should think of Congress's spending power and the limits of the president's discretion when um, either spending money or here not collecting money that's owed to the government it's a really big issue. It's going to come up again in the fall in a case involving a, a federal agency that's funded outside of appropriations. And we've seen disputes over, you know, the border wall um, and President Trump's effort to spend money on it under what I thought was a pretty dubious reading of the law. So this is going to come up more and more. This is, a, this is a, I think, a, a, sing, a signal of, of future, future cases. Now, in this case, as you pointed out, you have six states, I think six states, suing to challenge the loan forgiveness policy. And there's also a couple others, um, individuals who are suing. A huge part of this case, which I won't, I won't get into here, but a huge part of, the, part of this case is whether the plaintiffs have what's called standing to sue in the first place. The Supreme Court is just not, a, it's not just a free-floating constitutional debate society. It's there to decide particular cases and controversies. And so the plaintiffs here, these states or the individual borrowers, they have to show that they're actually injured by the government policy in a specific, concrete way. I think at least one plaintiff will be able to make that showing in the case, but it's not at all clear. So it might be that the court doesn't even decide the big issue. They just say, we don't have power to hear this case at all. On the merits of the case, if, they, if the court does get to the legal question, I think the Biden administration is on really thin ice here. It's true that the HEROES Act does allow the president, the Department of Education, to waive or modify uh, laws related to uh, people's student debts when a national emergency, and I think the statute, if I remember correctly, it, it specifies you know terrorism, war, or other national emergencies. If that emergency injured the person's financial status with that loan, their ability to repay, 
the president can waive that probably on a case-by-case basis. But what the administration has done here, as, as listeners know, is to broadly waive immense amounts of debt for an immensely large group of people without the kind of case-by-case proof of injury from the, from the, the, the pandemic. I think the judges, they seemed skeptical, by and large, of, they seemed skeptical of the Biden administration's position. If I have to guess, my guess is that if they reach this issue, they'll say the Biden administration could have perhaps forgiven loans on a case-by-case basis where there's a real showing that the borrower is injured by the pandemic, financially injured by the pandemic. But my guess is that they'll say that what the Biden administration did here was too far. And if they do, then it'll be the latest in a series of cases involving the pandemic, involving climate policy, and a few other things where the Supreme Court has said that we, we the justices, are going to be very skeptical of agencies suddenly discovering immense power in old statutes uh, like this one. So I, I, with all apologies to any uh, borrowers on the line uh, or who are listening in, uh, it, did, it wasn't a particularly great day in court for the Biden administration. Yeah, so this kind of goes off of that, but how does a student, like I'm a student qualifying for the program potentially, ten dollars to $20,000 could lift a huge burden off my shoulder. Yeah. So how should an eligible student be thinking about this case knowing that it does stand on pretty shaky ground, but it also could help them quite a great deal. Yeah, and I don't mean to belittle that either. Um, I had a lot of student loans, especially after law school. Uh, my oldest daughter is going to start college in the fall, um, and we have a few kids behind her. So I, I understand the magnitude of this issue. If I were a student borrower, here's how I'd think of it. First, we won't know the answer until the case is decided, probably in June or July. And again, they might not decide the issue at all. If they do decide the case, they might rule in favor of the Biden administration. I, I'm doubtful, but it's possible. If they, Even if they rule against the Biden administration, my guess is the court will send some clear signals about the limits of the Biden administration's power on this issue. But also then that will signal how far the administration could go. Maybe they could forgive significant amounts of debt for individual borrowers on a case-by-case basis. Maybe the, the application process would be much, much bigger. But my guess is that the case won't end with the administration being told by the court, you can't forgive any loans. It'll be something short of that. And, and the last thing I suggest is, Really uh, read the work of my colleague Beth Akers here at AEI. She's done a lot of interesting work on student, um, on higher education finance generally, and then the ins and outs of this policy and related policies. And so the best thing the listeners could do to get smart on this is to read Beth. Great. All right. So I'll set the stage for our last major topic. North Carolina, they gained an additional seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, which required a redistricting of the state. Now, the state legislature passed a partisan gerrymander that was challenged and st- struck down in North Carolina Supreme Court for violating the state constitution's free elections clause. The legislature proposed another gerrymandered map to which the court ordered a special master to create a map for the 2022 congressional le- elections. The resultant case, Moore v. Harper, brings a once-fringe legal theory known as the independent state legislature theory to the U.S. Supreme Court. The North Carolina House claims that under the U.S. Constitution, state legislatures have the power to determine how federal elections are run without checks and balances from state constitutions and state courts. The argument focuses on language in Articles 1 and 2 of the U.S. Constitution that charges each state and the legislature thereof to conduct elections for federal office. 
As a result, ISL theory suggests that congressional redistricting plans and presidential electors approved by state legislatures should not be subjected to review by state courts. Now, federal courts under this theory would still have oversight over what state legislatures do, and also Congress is granted power to oversee state legislatures in congressional elections. There's just no oversight at the state level, so state legislatures may do as they please. So narrowly, this case is about North Carolina, but the scope of this theory is greater than just this one instance. That being said, what are your thoughts on this case or even the theory itself? Is it concerning? Is it not? Well, as you, su- as you suggested, while this case is about the districting for congressional elections, it's happening in the shadow of a debate we had a couple of years ago in the last presidential election because Article 2 of the Constitution, which deals with the presidency and how we elect presidents, It says that uh, when it comes to appointing uh, the electors for the president, it says each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors. So Article 2 of the Constitution says that the state legislatures decide how we pick our electors. And in the last presidential election, you had arguments about whether that provision would allow a state legislature to ignore the results of the popular vote in the state and just designate uh, a electors uh, on, on the legislature's own. I think that's an overreading of Article 2. I don't think that's actually what the Constitution allows. It allows the legislature to make the rules in advance for how we pick electors, but not after the fact. Now, I say all that to say that's not really what this case is about. This case, Moore versus Harper, is about the other provision in Article 1 that says that the time, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the state legislature the legislature thereof, and Congress can pass some laws on this too, it says. So the question is, what's the extent of the state legislature's powers in drawing districts? And then what's the role of the courts? As you you pointed out, in this case, the state legislature drew new electoral maps. There was a lawsuit in state courts about it, arguing that the maps violated the state constitution's protection of what's called free and fair elections. It's a very broad state constitutional provision. And so the state courts said, because the legislature violated that, we're going to draw the maps using a a special master. I think it's actually a hard question, right, whether a state court drawing the maps from the ground up violates this constitutional provision. The really hard cases would be the court doesn't totally redraw the maps, but it it strikes down some aspects of the legislature's map. That's, I think, a harder question. Um, Here, the case was simplified a bit by the fact that the state legislature went so far. The litigants uh, who sued on behalf of North Carolina, the lawyers, they added some caveats to the case, saying we're not saying state courts have no role at all, but we think it's, it's more limited than what the courts did here. What's also complicated the case, though, is that the state Supreme Court, the North Carolina court, announced that they're actually going to reconsider their own underlying decision. Uh, so it's right now up in the air. We're recording this. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. We're recording this in, in, uh, in, in early, mid-April. Well, a few weeks ago, the U.S. Supreme Court asked for some briefs on whether they ought to just punt the case altogether and wait for the state Supreme Court to decide it. But the big picture here is these are really important issues for future represent- congressional elections, future presidential elections. I do think that it would be good if we had a bit more clarity on exactly what the role of the state legislatures is and and the role of the state courts in in lawsuits around the the legislature's work. Great. And yeah, I do agree with that. I think that it really depends. The court seems to have a lot of leeway with which they can go with this case. If Mm -hmm. they 
if they do so choose to rule, rule narrowly. Um, you know, Allie, every once in a while a case comes to the Supreme Court, and by the time it gets to oral argument, the justices are almost asking, well, what is this case actually what about? Is it about? What's it even about? And that can be what what are the legal claims that are really being made here or what are the facts of the case? And this is becoming one of those cases where there were already questions about the claims. I think a lot of people, um, when the case came up, a lot of people thought the claims about the state's legislature's power would be very broad and they were narrower than expected. And now you have the facts of what happened in the state changing a bit. And so it'll, you know, the justices probably are wondering at this point, what is this case actually about? Yeah, so... Would a favorable ruling for the respondents, do you think, just really put a halt to this theory? Well, I'll, let me just put it this way. It, it is possible that the court could decide the case in favor of the North Carolina state legislature in a way that opens the door up to much more power in the state legislatures to, to, to direct the outcomes of presidential elections. It's possible. I'd be shocked if that actually happened. It's possible. More likely, the justices, if they do decide the merits of this case, they will really limit it to the redistricting context. And whichever way they decide it, they will really draw clear lines in terms of what they think they're actually deciding. And my guess is they'll probably try to limit the impact of this case as much as possible. Great. Thank you for all of that insight. That was fascinating. Um, So now is for the final question. It's not Supreme Court related, but we ask this of all of our guests. Um, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college? That's a great question. So I went to college a long time ago uh, at the University of Iowa, and I loved it. Uh, if there are any uh, li- Iowa listeners here on the podcast, go Hawkeyes. Um, I loved college. Uh, my wife loved college. We met there. I wouldn't do it any differently. I, the University of Iowa is a big place. I was a business major. I took big classes. I also did journalism. Uh, I did a lot of things. And one thing I did know that I got right was I tried a lot of different things. I took English classes, philosophy classes, everything in addition to business. What I didn't know, and I only learned after law school, after I came here, I learned that the one thing my education was really missing was the opportunity. Well, not I probably had opportunities, but I never seized them. I, what I didn't do was I didn't seize the opportunity to really read great books under the guidance of a great teacher or mentor. I loved reading. I read a lot, but I kind of did it, most of it on my own. And after coming to Washington and meeting friends who were students of Harvey Mansfield at Harvard or Leon and Amy Cass at the University of Chicago or at other schools like that, I learned that the chance to read timeless books with real guidance from a great teacher is, is, is so special. And I've tried to I've tried to pursue that a little bit as an adult, um, reading some of these books and trying to learn as much as I can from some of these great teachers. Um, but college is the time to do it. So the short answer that was the long version. The short answer would be, I wish I would have found one great teacher to read great books under, and I wish that I would have been more selective in the books I read. I loved all the books I read in college, but I wish I would have dedicated more time to a smaller set of books that I would have read much more slowly and much more carefully. The timeless books about the timeless questions. Great. Um, Adam, thank you so much for your time today. I hope that the listeners enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Um, but yeah, thank you. Well, thank you, Allie. Again, I'm so glad that, that you were here at AEI and, and thanks to everybody who's listening. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.